Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Rebecca, did you hear about Brandon Dassey? Oh, did I? Are we going to talk about that? This week? Nope. <laughs> Because don't we recorded our episode before Thursday's news, but we will talk about that development in the Making the Murder case next time. Can't wait. I do want to let you know about something. What's that? Thrive Market. Ooh, one of our favorite new sponsors, Thrive Market. Yeah. Now, look, when it comes to grocery shopping, we always want three things. High quality foods, competitive prices, and a store that's accessible to us. And we can almost always get two of those things. Right. Right. Your neighborhood store doesn't carry organic food or the stuff they have is super expensive or one of those giant warehouses, not even in your area. Code, right, right. Right. Exactly. Now you can get all three from Thrive Market. All three? Yeah. Their website has all the exact same high quality products as the corporate guys and they ship to you wherever you live in the U.S. And they're able to save you 25 to 50% more than that big box store. How do they do that? Well, it's a good question. I'd say they cut off their middleman, see, and they pass it along, <laughs> see. Uh, look, they've got 4,000 organic products. So maybe what you want is a, a selection of gluten-free products okay, or non-GMO, something like that. I made a call and talked to Thrive Market co-CEO Gennar Loveless and asked him about how you can use their website to shop based on your values. You're really looking into this. So we've sorted the entire catalog by hundreds of different categories that you can filter according to your dietary preferences. You may not have a major preference and you may be just generally interested in healthy and organic food. And we make it very easy for you to be able to search very broadly or search within a much narrower scope based upon your dietary preferences or your child's allergen needs. And so for us, it's not about being exclusively gluten-free or non-GMO. Those are things that we think about in the broader catalog as we work to solve solutions for families wherever they are. So, Kevin, when you say groceries, are you talking about just food? No, no, no. They offer all sorts of products that are either responsibly made or non-toxic, things like cleaners and soap and body washers and baby products. What about stuff for pets? Yes, pets stuff too. Remember those liver snaps that we got? (gasps) Those came from Thrive Market? They did. Look, I did a whole bunch of online shopping. It's a very easy website to use. And I got all the same stuff I could have gotten at that warehouse place. Not only was it sent right to my door, but I got to see exactly how much money I saved. And they are not fooling. It's major savings. And you can start shopping that way today. Today. Yeah. If you get a membership to Thrive, they will also give a membership 
to a senior citizen or a veteran or a family in need. It's going to also give them access to healthier food at a good price. That's altruistic. Yeah, eat good, feel good, right? So Gennard is giving our listeners a really great offer. If you go to thrivemarket.com slash crimewriters, you're going to get a free 30-day trial. I said, Gennard, that's not enough. Sweeten it. He said, okay, how about this? I'll throw in a free shipping. I said, not enough. Keep going. He said, okay, 25% off your first purchase, and that's 25% off on top of the 25 to 50% savings you're going to get every day. I said, you got a deal, man. You drive a hard bargain. I do. Look at this. I love my listeners. So whether you're into natural foods or you want to shop responsibly or you're just looking for convenient, affordable grocery shopping, you should go to thrivemarket.com slash crime writers. That's thrivemarket.com slash crime writers. Crime writers. Now hit that button. Let's start the show. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about true crime, pop culture, journalism, and this week, a documentary about a crime that has Laura Bricker's backup, Sour Grapes on Netflix. Plus, some sadly not shocking true crime updates, a whole pile of love mail, and a crime of the week that has us all asking, will we ever go into the woods again? Joining me to get that done is my true crime co-author, real-life husband, and the host of These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast, Kevin Flynn. What's up, Kay? What's up, Kay? Is that how we're going to refer to each other now? No. Hey, art dog. (laughs) That was Toby's line. I'm just, you know. Okay. How you doing? Can I just say happy birthday to my dad? Yes, you can. This is the thing. My dad actually is now listening to the podcast. (gasps) And he knows that it's Laura. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about the feminine hygiene products we were selling. Yes, yes. (laughs) And, (laughs) And I'm telling you listeners, think back at all of the filthy things that have come out of my mouth. Yes. In the past two years. And now my you dad- You kissed your dad is, with that mouth? Jeez. <laughs> so, happy birthday, Dad. Happy so- birthday, Charby. Sorry in advance. We actually have one other birthday thing I want to throw out there. Mm-hmm. We got an email from a really nice listener named Chris, who says that his wife, Michelle Cohen, is a huge fan of our podcast. He was wondering if I would write her an email and wish her happy birthday. And I was like, screw that. I'm going to wish her happy birthday on the show. (laughs) So happy birthday, Michelle. I'm sorry your uh, thunder was stolen a little bit by Kevin's dad, but whatever. Happy birthday. Let's introduce the rest of our panel. Yes. (laughs) Also joining us is true crime author, journalist, former defense investigator, licensed PI, and chin hair warrior, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello. I am plum out of chin hairs this week. Did you ever think we get so many tips about chin hair removal as we've been getting on Twitter this week? I think we're on to something. I really do. And finally with us is the panelist our audience most often says they want to both hug and throttle, the novelist behind the brilliant City Trilogy and co-host of the podcast Radio Free Dystopia, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. So are those the same people want to like hug me and then throttle me? Or is it like no, different groups of people? A lot of people want to hug you, but Rabia Chaudhry told me this week that sometimes she wants to throttle you. But this is still one of her favorite podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> despite me. Despite. No, she likes well, because you. Because of you. Despite my best effort, she still listens. <laughs> she does. She does. Islam means peace, except in your case. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> 
Uh, I want to kick off the show this week with one of my favorite things to talk about. Kevin, can you please read this? Love mail. We have gotten some really exceptional email this week, but I'm first going to start with a couple quick ones that are not exceptional. They're just more transactional and interesting. Mm -hmm. First off, Toby, this one is for you. This is from Matt in Killeen, Texas, and he wants you to know he's sorry to break it to you, but Twin Peaks... That bar you talked about wanting to go to where all those bikers were shot in Waco, yep. it has been shut down. So, Aww. sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah. That would have been a long, long drive. It would have. It would have been like, that would have ended in disappointment. <laughs> like uh, National Lampoon's vacation. <laughs> K- throw the kids in the car. We're going to Twin Peaks. Going to Twin Peaks. Wallet. Maybe uh, they'd open like, it up just for you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they could, let's just have a shootout for Toby. <laughs> By the way, that shooting was featured in one of the very first episodes of the NPR podcast Embedded with Kelly McEvers. It's a really good episode. If our friends hmm. in podcast land haven't listened to it, go back. I think it's episode two of Embedded. It's really, really mm-hmm. good. It's, she, she actually gets to know the people in the rival biker gangs who shot each other at that restaurant. Which comes in handy. There's some really good journalism around that. I, I read several good articles in magazines. Also, another email pertaining to you, Toby. Um, this is from E. <laughs> New to your podcast and I'm enjoying catching up on past episodes. This comment is not crime related but i can't get past how much toby sounds like the voice of the dog in the new abc series downward dog both of which really crack me up listen and discuss so toby you need to check that out uh, it's a show called downward dog apparently you sound just like the dog in that show what do you think of that it's hard to know what to think <laughs> i guess i'm flattered how about that all right all right well we also got a really interesting email <laughs> Remember last week during our conversation about Ear Hustle, we talked about how we feel about when people do stories about incarcerated people and they feel the need to include what they're in for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is from a listener who asked me to call her Catherine, who says, Hi, guys. I'm a longtime listener and love the podcast. It's the first time I've ever wanted to write in about something. Just a personal anecdote about asking inmates what they're in for. I guess this should have a trigger warning, she says. I'm an ER doc where I trained. We would often get inmates in the ER. For a while, as a way to get to know them, I would ask them what crime they had been convicted of. Until one day, a really nice guy replied, without missing a beat or looking ashamed, I had sex with kids and got caught. (laughs) Jesus Christ. As a mom and ER doc that's taken care of abused children, but more just because I'm a human being, I found myself really struggling with treating him appropriately and not just clawing his eyes out like a crazed animal. Don't worry, he got the care he needed. Since then, I just don't ask on the off chance the answer is similar because I struggle so much with doing my job after that. I think I would have a similar reaction to hearing that on a podcast. Laura, what's your reaction to that email? Is that interesting or what? That is interesting. Um, And and it is tough. I mean, I can say, you know, cases I worked on where people were charged with some pretty rough things at times. I did struggle with that as well, you know, representing people when I knew. But I mean, I knew it was my job, but I can see and she's in the same situation. It's her job to take care of these people um, that are coming in, even when the inmates are coming in. And um, especially when you're a mother, everything changes. I actually saw an inmate today. You did? At the podiatrist's. Oh, really? Yeah, I went... (laughs) Miss, I, I think that's an intern. <laughs> Did he have a bunion? No, he was being. I was. <laughs> I had. Uh, I have a planter's wart, but that's a whole other story. But I was that's in a whole the other waiting podcast. room. <laughs> yeah, this guy comes out, and I look up, and it was two corrections officers, 
taking a guy in his his, uh, his his pine green jumpsuit in shackles, and I'm thinking, what, they don't have a podiatrist at the state prison? Of course they don't, no. Our state prison is like the most underfunded state prison like in the country. Actually, I see a lot of inmates at, at where I work. There's a uh, an optician in the building that a lot of the inmates visit. So <laughs> very often there'll be like the van outside the building in the morning. Yeah. Inmates have eye issues too, guys. They do. I'm sure. All right. So we have another email that I thought was going to be the best email of the week. <laughs> And I want to apologize to this wonderful emailer, you'll know who you are in a second, for not having yours be the best, because I said it was the best, but then we got another one in after that was even better. So this is the penultimate great email of the week. Greetings, crime writers on. So fun to come home from a 10-hour day working at San Quentin on Ear Hustle to listen to your totally charming, enthusiastic, and in-depth review. No. Thanks for taking the time to really listen to the episode and contemplate all the ins and outs of what we are trying to do. I'm going to ask Lieutenant Robinson to listen and review it so I can bring it in for Antoine and Erlon to hear. They will flip. You are wondering about the sound design and music. All that is done inside the prison. No post outside sweetening. And all the music is original, either created by Antoine or a few other guys inside. We are not allowed to use music that is copyrighted. So we just decided, fuck it, we'll do it ourselves. (laughs) Hope you all tune in for the rest of the season. We truly appreciate you taking the time to think about and talk about our new podcast. All best to you, Nigel Poor. Mmm. What do you think of them apples? Pretty fucking awesome. (laughs) (laughs) It is. And I'll tell you, I've been corresponding a little bit with Nigel since then because I wrote back to her and told her how much I appreciate it. And then she sent us a direct message on Twitter. Uh, Apparently, she's new to social media and she said she stopped and asked the guy at Office Depot how to direct message us. (laughs) 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 But she does think that the guys inside are going to be able to hear our review of Ear Hustle. I'm just so thrilled to hear from a podcaster that is doing work that we all love. So uh, there was a, There was a time when I, I would be really scared about the idea of we're going to give your work to some inmates and let them <laughs> let them think about it for a while. But uh, in this case, I really like the stuff the guys are doing. So Yeah, that's really great. So uh, let me read the final love mail of the week. Rebecca, Kevin, Laura, and Toby. I'm a big fan of Crime Writers On. I listen to a lot of podcasts, and yours is my favorite podcast. I thought I would share an amusing story with you. My fourth child was born on Friday, May 26th. I went into labor around dinner time, and when we realized it was go time for real, one of the things I made sure to do was download that week's episode of Crime Writers On. (laughs) Because I wanted to be able to listen to it in the hospital after the baby was born. I have short labors, so it made my husband nervous. He wanted to avoid delivering the baby in the car, but I made him wait for the podcast to download before we left the house. I have a super cheap smartphone, so I download all my podcasts onto my computer and then put them on an iPod. (laughs) Wow. It turned out we have plenty of time. We got to the hospital at 8 p.m. and the baby wasn't born until 10, 10 p.m. Love you guys. Lydia, Mike, that's her hubby, and baby Ezra. So, Toby, nature was calling in a big way for our wonderful listener, Lydia, and she stopped the music so she could download our essential audio to bring with her to the hospital before she delivered her baby. What do you think of that, Toby Ball? I think that's a great move. (laughs) (laughs) Highly recommend it. You do. You do. What do you think? Well, it seems to have worked out for her. (laughs) It's a lot better than like what I did, which was finish vacuuming the house before I went to the hospital, even though I was in labor. (laughs) Mm. I think downloading our podcast sounds like a lot better than what I did. I don't know. I'm starting to question her life choices here, right? (laughs) 
But I want to know which one of us did she name the baby after? Uh, Ezra. What's the middle name? I don't know. Um, oh, that's bullshit. Tobias. Tobias. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't yeah, know. That's an awesome story. But congratulations to Lydia, to you and your wonderful family, and bully on you for bringing our podcast to the hospital. I hope you told all the doctors and nurses about it. We could use those extra downloads. One programming note, as many of our longtime listeners may know, Last summer, we went on a slightly different schedule. We decided to go bi-weekly because, you know, summer, (laughs) stuff to do, (laughs) uh, trips to take. We are doing that again, once again, this summer. We are going bi-weekly. This is our final weekly episode for the next couple of months, and then we will be bi-weekly. Sorry to those of you who find that disappointing, but unfortunately, it's just very, very difficult for the four of us to convene weekly during the summer, and we really want to bring you the best content we possibly can and also, you know, enjoy the summer a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So it'll be back in two weeks after this episode. And uh, we will continue to answer emails and tweet with you in the meantime. And who knows? Maybe we'll drop a piece of bonus content for our Patreon listeners here and now. What do you think, Kevin? I'm all for that. You're so all we're for off that? next week, but we'll be back in two. Yes. Okay. So all those babies, all those women who <laughs> are at nine months, you better just keep your knees pressed really close. <laughs> What are you sucking on, by the way? Cough drop. All right, Kevin, it's time to move on to the next segment of our show. Can you please read this for me? True Crime Podcast Update. That's intense. So last week, many of you may have noticed in post-production, I added a a little note during our discussion of S-Town following up on Tyler Goodson's trial around his theft of property from John B. McLemore's house. I put a little note there that we hadn't yet heard the news that Tyler Goodson had been arrested on animal cruelty charges and charged with those charges for allegedly shooting Someone's dog in the head. I don't want to talk about this too much. I find it personally very upsetting. It's really difficult for me to talk about crimes against animals in particular. But I just want to know, Laura, you know, when you sort of read the details of the charges about Tyler Goodson's having shot this dog in the head, which I believe he's admitted to doing. I think he claims that the dog attacked his dog or something. Does this make you root for him differently than you did before you read this detail of his story? I hate to admit it, but it does. Animal cases are are the cases that have always been the hardest for me. Even when I was doing defense cases, I I actually would say I, I can't sometimes take animal cases because it's just, you know, when somebody does something to an animal and hurts an animal that's such a vulnerable, helpless creature, I, I have a really hard time getting past that, regardless of why they did it. So sorry, Tyler. Uh, yeah. We're no longer but you can send a... me the gold. You know, he can send me the gold if he wants. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, it's just, it's really, really tough. And I think we got, you know, a clue into the side of his personality. You know, we had that interview with Brian Reed in S-Town where he talked about how he was, what, going to cut that guy's, guy's fingers. that guy's fingers off? And he admitted, like, he would have gone through with it. And Just hear, one. It would only take one finger. Yeah, and, and, you, and you hear Brian Reed sort of saying, like, you wouldn't actually do that. And he's like, no, I would. And it's this is, I think, a good case of and when someone tells you what they're like, maybe you should listen <laughs> uh, a little bit. But, yeah, I, I it's going to be hard for me to, to come back from that one. What about you, Toby? How do you feel about these new charges that have been held against Tyler Goodson for shooting this dog in the head? Uh, it, it doesn't surprise me in the slightest. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't really change my opinion about him. It just sort of confirms it. Kevin, you, you're on the same page. The rest of us. Yeah. Well, to the extent that it, it changes sort of the way that I, I look at him, 
it shouldn't change in court whether or not he is culpable uh, for all that uh, all those thefts or whether he has right to it. Separate case. It's a yeah. It's a separate thing. It's a different bad act. Mm-hmm. And remember, even on the uh, the animal cruelty charge, innocent until proven guilty. You know, so in the eyes of the law, we give him the benefit. We give the benefit to a lot of subjects of different podcasts, right? Right. Because we feel they've been they've been treated unfairly by the system. The system applies to everybody. That's right. So while it's a lot of people on Twitter be like bye bye to Tyler, and I'm like, yeah, okay, that's a reasonable response, but that shouldn't affect the way his trial comes out. Right. That's an excellent point, Kevin. It's very enlightened of you. Oh, hey, I'm woke. I'm woke <laughs> AF, yeah. Well, uh, speaking of twists that were maybe not unexpected but difficult, another true crime podcast update. I'm not going to have you read it because oh, okay. I don't right. want to make light of this. It's kind of a, a big uh, deal, and a lot of people are very upset about it is the Castile verdict. Of course, we talked about the Philando Castile uh, killing by Geronimo Yanez, that uh, cop who shot him, and we talked about the podcast 74 Seconds from Minnesota Public Radio. This week, Geronimo Yanez was acquitted by the jury for shooting Philando Castile. And then almost immediately after the acquittal came this release of all of the footage of the incident, of the actual shooting, uh, the footage from inside the car where Diamond and her daughter were being held after the shooting, and really a whole lot came out immediately. Um, Toby and Laura, did either of you watch any of that video that was released? Uh, yeah, did. I did. Before we talk about like the, what was the content of the actual videos, you know, I wanted to talk about the process. Laura, do you know anything about the process behind releasing evidence like this immediately after a trial you know obviously it wasn't released before the trial for various reasons of course we'd heard about it on 74 seconds and through other reporting accounts but this idea of like dumping all this stuff out there right after the verdict do you have any understanding of what the process is behind that well i think it's different from state to state um you know i've gone through that when i was researching my book you know in massachusetts certain trial information is public only after The appeal is done. You know, in this case, this information that was released was part of the discovery in the case that, you know, the defense and the prosecution had. And, you know, so before the trial, they would not have released that because that could have prejudiced people that might be on the jury or kind of influenced perception of the case in such a way that there would be just too much information out there before the case happened. And, and, you know, once that has been introduced as evidence in open court, you know, in most places, that's then considered part of the public record. So, you know, I'm not sure how it came to be released. I mean, it could have been that the media outlets had filed like a right to know request. And so as soon as the jury had reached a verdict, they could then get that information that they had sought access to. I'm not sure what the process was in this case, but that that's a couple scenarios. Now, Toby, this video was released so immediately after the verdict that I think we were able to compare the verdict itself with then what we know the jury saw. And when you saw what the jury saw, were you able to reconcile the decision they made with what's on that video? Uh, No. It's hard to watch that video and think that that police officer, you know, can just walk away scot-free from that. You know, that being said, I, you know, who knows what was going on in the courtroom and how things were explained and, and, and the different arguments that were made by the lawyers. But there's a huge disconnect, I think, from watching that video 
and thinking that that is an acceptable way for a law enforcement officer to act. Kevin, did you watch the video? I haven't seen the video yet. I've heard the audio on the radio, right? which I actually think is a good way to examine it first is to just listen to it mm-hmm. and, th- and then take it in. And you definitely could hear the panic in the officer's voice mm-hmm. when all of a sudden this communication about, I have a guy, very clearly, calmly said, I have, I don't know if he said a firearm or I have a, whatever he said. And then it was like, okay, just don't go for it. And then all of a sudden, don't go for it, don't go for it. You know, I, and I also heard an interview with a juror. Mm-hmm. And for her, she said, and she was sort of speaking for the group to the extent that she could. But it came down to, in their mind, what was going on in Officer Giannis's head. Right. She said that it didn't seem like he was lying. So to, so to her, <laughs> yeah. the prosecution had to prove that he was lying about that. But here's the, here's the thing that I wonder, and maybe you can speak to this, Laura, having been involved in so many of these cases. And Kevin, I'm not, I, I know that you're not saying you feel that way. That's no, just, no, 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 I'm just, saying that, that's what she said. You're just reporting what you heard. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. want our listeners to think that uh, you uh, have, you know, that you share the juror's opinion. But look at what the crime was. You know, shooting somebody who shouldn't have been shot. Are other defendants given that same benefit of the doubt by juries who aren't cops of what their state of mind was at the moment they pulled the trigger when they shouldn't have pulled the trigger? Like, doesn't it seem like that's an awful stretch? No, it's, it's really, sorry, I'm so fired up about this. I watched this video today and I was like, I was just so struck by how calm Officer Yanez was as he was like walking up to the car. And then all of a sudden, it's like, boom, boom, boom. And I'm like, whoa, where the hell did that come from? I mean, it was just watching it unfold. It was just really shocking to see how it went from one extreme to the other so quickly. But you're right. You know, I think in this case, maybe they gave him the benefit of the doubt because they had sort of this idea in their mind of him being a law enforcement officer and that he wouldn't tell a lie. um, He wouldn't cut down the cherry tree. So that was kind of going into their thought process, because if it was somebody else and they just shot somebody in a car like that, you know, do you really think they would not have been convicted? And there was video of it? Right. And I guess I guess my question is like, who cares whether he was lying or not? He did it. Yeah. The state of mind stuff, it doesn't really. I mean, at some point, it's like if I do something horrible to somebody and I think in the moment it was the right thing to do, it doesn't mean I didn't actually do that thing. You know what I mean? You're not asked to put yourself into dangerous positions all the time. Right. I think it's the difference. Yep. I mean, my feeling, as I said before, is it's hard for me to believe that he just walks away from that. But it's hard to compare that, what happened there, to just a random citizen going up and shooting somebody in their car Mm -hmm. because, A, they don't have the authority to pull somebody over and demand that they roll down the window and produce their ID and stuff like that. And it's also not their responsibility. So it, it does make sense to take that into account when you're taking a look at things and that you're asking these people to take enormous risks all the time. You know, that, that's a factor in how, in how they perceive these situations. At the same time, if you are unable to handle those situations for whatever reason, and I think 74 Seconds made a pretty good case that this guy was not sort of Fit. like his panic response was triggered too easily, yep. essentially, that he probably shouldn't have been a cop. And we, we often see that juries just historically have been reluctant to convict officers for acts that they do in the line of duty. And it's just something that 
has always been, and I think there's more awareness of the double standard now, Mm -hmm. but that is just sort of, you know, the way it has been. You know, one of the more unpredictable things that's happened recently is Teen Vogue has become like a serious news magazine. Teen Vogue is amazing. This woman named, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Zoe Samudzi, I think is how you pronounce it, wrote an op-ed about why it's so hard to get convictions in police fatal shootings. And, you know, I recommend people read it. And if it's okay, I was just going to read a tiny little bit of it. Sure. She writes, police are not held accountable in courts because they are consistently not held accountable on almost any level. From sympathetic media accounts criminalizing black victims to legal standards that make grand jury indictments incredibly difficult to structured refusals to hold police accountable at a federal level. A 2016 investigation by In These Times found that indigenous people are even more likely than black people to be affected by police violence and the lack of accountability that follows. But both are significantly affected because of the unique nature in which anti-black and anti-indigenous violence are inextricably linked to the American system. Mm. It was recommended to me by a friend, and I thought it was very perceptive and, and very angry. I tweeted it out. It's, it's definitely worth a read. Yeah, I mean, I, it's funny. I'll just say one last thing about this, then we'll move on. Toby, you said something about how you, know, you talk about the position that officers are in and how dangerous it is. And Kevin, you've talked about this before. I think that makes a crime like this worse, not more excusable, but actually worse because you have somebody who is charged with protecting and charged uh-huh. with being better than us. And so when you see them kill somebody when they should, I mean, to me, to me, it's worse. You know, again, as we talked about, I don't know if it was last week or a couple of weeks ago or whenever, it's like, why is this always African-Americans? Always. Regardless of like whether you have malice in your heart or whatever, there's no way around the fact that he was making assumptions mm-hmm. about Philando Castile based on his skin color, where if it had been a young blonde woman who said, I've got a gun in my you know handbag, would that same thing have happened? My guess is probably not. What, um, what, what point do you call that malice, even when it doesn't feel like malice to the officer, right? Because it is malice. Yeah, well, it yeah. is malice. Whether or not it feels like that to them or not, that's what it's it malfeasance. is. You know, individual trials, you're like, what could have happened here? What could have happened here? What could have happened here? They'll let the officer walk free. But there's just such, like, a relentless pattern mm-hmm. of there's no accountability. Well, um, not to switch gears too hard, because what you're talking about actually relates to the one thing I wanted to talk about very briefly before we move on. This week, Bill Cosby's rape trial wrapped up after five full days of jury deliberation in a hung jury. And here's another instance where I think that a lot of people are very, very frustrated in that it is seemingly impossible to pin this crime on this guy who now has, what, 50-something accusers who've come out publicly and countless others who uh, haven't. You know, Laura, I wanted to ask you just a quick question about the Cosby trial and this hung jury Of course, on the Cosby side, they're calling it some sort of vindication, but we all know that there's other issues at play here. But does it also speak to how difficult these cases are to try and prosecute? Yeah, and I think that was part of this case originally, why the first prosecutor didn't end up bringing this case forward, because he he was quoted in some article I was reading this week saying, you know, I'm pretty, you know, this woman was assaulted, but... 
whether or not you can get a conviction is a different story. I wouldn't call a hung jury necessarily a victory. Unfortunately, I don't want to compare it to Adnan's case, but it's like the court system where it just drags on and on and on. So now it's like, are they going to bring it again? And it's really just after this amount of time, there, there could be one person who really just won't change their position right. for you know whatever reason. But you know, I think when you're dealing with sex assault cases that are older, allegations happened a long time ago. I think those are cases that are always hard because you know the jurors are always questioning the reliability of the memory of the victim regardless of how clear and concise the victim's statement is. People are, you know, likely say, well, how can they actually remember this if it happened so long ago? And how can, you know, so I think that's the challenge from the jurors side of things is just how much credibility do they give a victim who is recounting something that happened a long time prior? Right. Now, I, I think one of the things that I wonder, I mean, Bill Cosby's not well. I mean, you, you saw his, his behavior outside the courtroom. He definitely does not look healthy. He's old. <laughs> Laura, do you think there's any chance we'll see him convicted of any of the crimes that he's been accused of before he eventually dies? <laughs> Boy, wow, that's a lot of pressure asking me that question. I don't think so. No? I mean, I think for the sake of the victims that have come forward and all these people that want to see something happen, you you hope that maybe there's going to be some accountability, but it's a tough one. Yeah. I mean, Kevin, you've talked a lot about the sort of idea that like you have somebody in the body of their work and then you have the things you know about them as a person or that you think you know. Right. Can you separate the art from the artist? Yeah. Yeah. I think we've talked about Cosby in particular on this show before. And now that we've had like an actual trial and we've sort of seen how the parties behave at trial, you see Cosby coming out of the courtroom, like doing his fat Albert impression, which was... Bizarre. Will you ever be able to look at any of his work again without seeing that? You know, I can't quite say that I've seen any of Bill Cosby's work anywhere since he was accused. It's not like there's a lot of Cosby show reruns anymore. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think that one can. I mean, ultimately, you look at Michael Jackson, but time has to pass, I think. It's hard for me to say I don't think that we'll be seeing people wearing a lot of Cosby sweaters anymore. (laughs) But if you do have a Cosby sweater, maybe the thing you should do is just trade it in for something from La Tote. (laughs) (laughs) Because if you've got a top that you don't really care for, La Tote is perfect for you. La Tote is a fashion subscription box that sends brand name clothing and accessories Right to your door for one low monthly fee. You'll get like, you know, some great tops, maybe some pants or skirts, accessories to go with it. Scarves. Scarves. Jewelry. You wear what you like. Send the rest back. Send the rest back. You got something there that you really love? Buy it. Still get some new stuff when you send the rest back. I see this happen all the time. Someone opens the closet. Someone opens the closet <laughs> and says, oh, I have nothing to wear. Of course, there's stuff to wear. It's just that you're bored with it or you think like, oh, this doesn't fit me or it's out of style and I just haven't thrown it out yet. It won't fit on my dad bod. Uh, yeah, you know, Latote <laughs> takes that all the way because you get fresh stuff all the time. You wear it. It's like you've got a super brand new wardrobe. Everybody is super jealous of you. Laura, do you agree? I do. And I say I have another Latote story. I'm going to a wedding this weekend. I wasn't really like in love with any of the things in my closet. And I was like, you know what? 
I'll swap out some dresses this week from Latote and have something to wear to this wedding. And uh, they send it so quickly. It's amazing. As soon as they scan it at the post office, you get an email and a text like probably two or three hours later saying your next tote is ready to be selected. And that's why Rebecca just sits around in her underwear waiting. She's like, I know. <laughs> I am ready for this. I sit around in my robe. Yes. And, and by the way, pregnant listeners, hopefully who you're not in labor at this moment, but uh, they do have maternity totes, That's too. Nice. It's brilliant. Yeah. To do that. So go to letote, L-E-T-O-T-E dot com, and get started for as little as $39 a month. And get 50% off your first month when you enter promo code CRIME at checkout. Once you sign up, you'll receive your completely customized tote within days. Wear it all you want, return everything in the mail when you're done, and repeat all month long. Again, that's letote.com. Enter the code CRIME. crime. And feel fabulous with fashion delivered right to your door. I love me some Latote. What else you got, Kevin? Well, I don't know what you're doing this summer, Rebecca. Uh... Actually, I do know what you're doing this summer. <laughs> I'm doing stuff with you. We're going to Podcast Movement, everybody. That's right, we are. Podcast Movement is the world's largest gathering of new and veteran podcasters or anyone looking to start their own podcast the right way. And those nominated for awards that are going to be given out at Podcast Movement, like you. Yeah, I'll, I'll be so happy for West Wing Weekly when they win my category. <laughs> Join over 2,000 podcasters from around the world in Anaheim this August for three days of workshops, panels, parties, and more. Featured speakers and panelists include Rabia, Susan, and Colin from Undisclosed, Dan Carlin from Hardcore History, Rebecca Lavoie. <gasps> what? You're actually, they actually wrote Rebecca Lavoie in here. I know. And I don't even know what I'm talking about yet. So that's amazing. <laughs> By the way, they just say Rabia. Yeah, I know. And they have to put Rebecca Lavoie. I know. What does that tell you? Yeah. You guys and over 150 <laughs> others from all around podcasting. The conference offers over 100 sessions on topics ranging from the technical aspects of setting up your equipment and the audio production to marketing and monetizing your current We could have used that show. when we started this show. That's for oh sure. Oh, my God. Learn more at podcastmovement.com and use the code CRIME to save $100 off registration. Use the code what? Crime. <laughs> All right. Well, now it's time to move on to our featured content of the week. Grab your corkscrew and pour a glass, people, because it's time to talk about the Netflix documentary Sour Grapes. This documentary, to be completely transparent, ended up on our slate of things to talk about as kind of an audible because we had a couple of listeners tweet us about it last week. And then Laura Bricker watched it and was like, we're talking about sour grapes. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I, I was like you last week. I was like, oh, my God, this is my favorite thing that I've seen in so long. So, even my husband liked it. Even your husband liked it. It's a miracle. If, if I know. Fireman Ken loved it. Fire Chief Ken. Basically, Sour Grapes is a documentary. It's on Netflix. It's the story of Rudy Kernawan. He's a rich 20-something with an incredible palate who charmed lots of rich people into thinking his wine collection was priceless and in the process perpetuated a con that still has the world of wine collectors reeling. In 2006, the auction house Acker, Merrill & Condit sold $35 million of wine, allegedly from his cellar. And in 2012, the FBI raided his suburban Los Angeles home and found all the fixings of a wine-forging enterprise. Rudy is now serving a 10-year prison sentence for that crime. So let's dig right in. One of uh, the most interesting aspects of this documentary for me is that it shows this very, very bro culture 
of wine collectors. It's not the way I necessarily thought wine collectors would be, but it struck me like as an, Mr. and Mrs. Howell. Struck me as incredibly bro. Uh, Toby, did you have that same reaction to this community of people? They were like dudes, like trying to one up each other constantly. Yeah, there's like a strange machismo thing, and they're all super rich. They've all got a, like money so that buying like a $10,000 bottle of wine and then sharing it with your buddies is like not that big a deal. Yeah. So the the way they were, it part of, I think what made this kind of enjoyable is that you didn't feel too bad about the victims. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's the anti-keepers really is what it is, right? Yeah. It's like, it's like, you know, the people who are scammed actually were in good position to afford it and not be like really materially hurt by it. Plus, they can they absorb the loss. Like, yeah. Plus, they all yeah, seem like giant douchebags. They're kind of dicks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, Kevin. One of the things that I pointed out to you is kind of unusual for a documentary is that the cinematography, even like down to the opening credits of this documentary, was. So good, right? Yeah. Shot for shot, like just little scenes of someone walking into a restaurant, like various camera angles. I mean, just the production style of this was, it was next level. Yeah, I didn't really get too deep into that, but it looked like there were a lot of different film partners beyond, I think, just the distributors. Mm -hmm. And I think there was, there was at least one French entity. And so somebody had to do the filming in France. Yes. And that stuff was way artsier. Next level. Yeah, than the stuff, you know, following the guys around Los Angeles or whatever. Right. Although well, I did like all the stuff with the two guys in the limousine. Oh, like yeah. <laughs> Hollywood Jeff Hollywood and Jeff, yes, yes. <laughs> so for our listeners, uh, I'm sure most of you have not watched this documentary. Hollywood Jeff is one of the bros that gets scammed by Rudy, and he basically spends the entire movie trying to convince people that the fake bottles of wine he bought from Rudy are actually real, which is <laughs> kind of <laughs> hilarious. Um, so, Laura, let's talk about the characters here, because you sent me a note talking about how much you love the characters and the characters in this documentary in the first persons are talking about Rudy sort of in the past tense like he was this and then they'll slip back and forth he is was is was and then there's all of this footage of him from parties from well he was going to be on a tv show so there were cameras following him around at one point what do you think of this portrait we see of Rudy when he's actually mixing it up with these people and and showing off his fancy palette and, and conning them basically I thought this was awesome. I thought this is what really made this stand out because usually when you have somebody that's been, you know, found out for some crime after the fact, you go back in the sort of retrospective. We were watching this, like I felt like we were watching this unfold as all the bro wine collectors were watching it unfold. And so we're watching these videos of Rudy before anybody suspects anything, before Rudy suspects that he's ever going to get caught as this was happening. And it was I thought it was amazing that they had this footage of him. And it was so candid and so relaxed. It wasn't staged. It was like somebody had just like pulled out a phone or something while they were all sitting around, you know, drinking their wine. And so it really, for me just made this so much better because you could see how they were taken in by him, you know, as you were watching what they watched. And then you had this whole cast of side characters that was like, that made it just over the top. It was like a cozy mystery gone like on steroids or something. <laughs> Hollywood Jeff with his little Izod shirt. And and then I like the French guy who had his own little theme song every Laurent time he came Ponceau, on. Laurent yes. The, he's the winemaker yeah. from Burgundy. Uh, he, is, he is the guy who was arguably the actual victim of this because he has a business mm-hmm. built on the heritage of his wine. Now, Kevin, we did get 
get those like very artistic explanations from him. We're at his vineyard in Burgundy in France and you see the vines and he sort of explains the art of it. And, and you know, he's sort of setting up why the wines he makes actually are special and expensive and worth something. And you may or may not agree as we sit here drinking our like, you know, <laughs> regular wine that we got from the New Hampshire State Liquor Store. Came out of a box. <laughs> but that was interesting, at least, right? It sort of gave well, you a sense of why people care. Yes, but in a sense, it, it's only necessary to drive the plot because it, this is very much a film like The Big Short or some of those other financial crash documentaries that we've seen in the past couple of years. We don't understand the economy around <laughs> fine wine. Yeah. But in a sense, we don't need to. Just give us a little bit of guidance. What we're there for is, in the words of the private investigator for Bill Koch. Surprise! Bill Koch is in this movie. As he said, it's the elegance of the con. Right. And so mm-hmm. we're there to see, like, what was this really all about and how did it get pulled off? Right. And so in this one, it could be fine wine. It could have been fine art. It could have been mortgage tranches. But whatever it was is is that's what's fascinating. So you've got a fascinating character in Rudy. And like, how could he have pulled this all off? But then we don't find out. Right. Well, yeah. that's another question. But but before we get there, Toby, a uh, quick question for you, because there is this line to describe Rudy. You know, we have Maureen Downey. She is the wine consultant who then becomes like a fraud investigator. She's the one that we see examining the bottles and saying whether or not they're real or fake. And she talks about how he set up this fraud by almost creating the market himself by creating so much excitement around the wines and going to these auctions and buying them all, money be damned, that it really incited this excitement around the whole idea of these things being super inflated price-wise and then dumping a bunch of his fraudulent stuff on them. So it's like he made the thing and tore it down. And at one point, you know, we know he's an outsider. We know he's mixing it up with rich guys from New York and Los Angeles. And he's described as the Gen X great Gatsby. And it seems like, in a literary way, almost like a perfect comparison. Yeah, no, I thought that was very apt. It's an act of self-creation. When it comes right down to it, and they start talking to these people who felt like they were very close to him, Nobody really knows that much about him. They have this sort of vague idea that his parents were super rich Heineken importers. So, yeah, I, I mean, I thought that was that was a great comparison. So uh, let's just talk about the fact that one of the Koch brothers is in this <laughs> documentary, <laughs> shall we? <laughs> uh, Toby, we get Bill Koch pop up and give us a tour of his palatial estate and then take us down to his palatial wine room and then line up his very expensive $4 million worth of wine from Thomas Jefferson's estate and then laughingly tell us uh, that he bought a bunch of stuff from Rudy, it turned out to be fake, and he has now hired this private investigator who's trying to solve the crime. I don't think he hired him. I think he was his actual private investigator. No, he actually worked for him like a full-time yeah, investigator yeah, yeah. because he's the kind of person who has an investigator. It's like saying he spilled something and he hired a maid to You're clean right. it up. You're absolutely yeah, right. No, the yes. guy was already there. He made he made this this guy's like, you know, raison d'etre like find out what's up with this. What did you think of the appearance of this legend of American politics who's really shaped our culture 
suddenly showing up as a character that we're supposed to be sort of sympathizing with in this documentary. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know how much like my own sort of political views sort of colored it, but I didn't find him all that sympathetic. Mm -hmm. Like he seemed like a guy who didn't do a whole lot of due diligence, had a ton of dough, like sort of bought things without really spending a lot of time trying to figure out if it was legit and found out he was burned, was like, I'm going to get this guy, even though what happened is really just kind of a, a drop in the ocean as far as like my personal situation is. It, it was a little jarring to see him at first. It's like, like, why is he even like in this? I right. Mean, but there must have been so many other people you could have gone to. But in some ways, he seemed to me like I could see the attraction, A, of having somebody that people had heard of, but B that it seemed like it kind of broke down into two groups, at least the way it's shown there. And one of them is these like sort of high flying wine bros. And, you know, they have that crazy auction where everybody's getting hammered on super expensive wine. (laughs) It was was part of their social order though, as well as like, they weren't just, uh, you know, it was was part of their like uh, identities. It was like being these wine bros, right? I found Bill to be super affable actually, especially given the fact that there is this public persona of him and his brother as these two Machiavellian characters. And I, I don't think they just grabbed him because he was the billionaire with wine. I'm inferring this from the magazine cover where he was dressed like an admiral. I think it was Wine Spectator. He led the charge against counterfeit wines. So he was the right person to have. Now, you can make a great joke like when he goes down to like his wine cellar. With 48,000 Right. He's like, this is my wine collection. (laughs) It's almost as expensive as my congressman collection. Uh, (laughs) That is a good joke, actually. Yeah. And I think 51% of our audience statistically would find that funny. But I thought he was an interesting character and to see him in this light. But you also have to have somebody that had, like they said in the thing, fuck you money. Right. Who could say, ha ha, I got $4 million worth of Mad Dog 2020. Yeah. Uh, and uh, <laughs> But if it weren't for him, the resources of the private investigators going to- He almost thought it was funny. It didn't it strike you that he almost thought it was like, he kind of thought it was funny in a way. Like that he would be able to line up those bottles and say, I spent $4 million on these and then probably spend way more than $4 million trying yeah. to like solve the case. Now keep in That's mind- That's why he kept the bottles. They were the conversation pieces. It's, well, it's like a party. It's like a party trick when he has a party and then they're like, hey, you want to come down? And then he gets to tell this story about how he, you know, he played a role in taking you know, this guy down. for these and, documentarians and, now, to well, come is, just so we can take the bottles so, out. So, Laura, we have these two basically investigators in this movie. We have uh, Laurent Ponceau, who's the guy who is who runs the Burgundy Vineyard in France, who's just mm-hmm. pissed. And he finds a way to sort of confront, you know, the auctioneer. He shows up <laughs> at that auction and is like, excuse me, but my vineyard, which has been in my family for generations, never made that vintage of wine in that year. It is fake. Uh, and then you have... Yes, and then you have yeah, yeah. The, and you have this uh, very very um, spunky investigator who, I'm guessing, does opposition research on politicians most of the time, and it's now mm-hmm. put on this other case. <laughs> you have two investigators here, and I know that you probably, as your dream job, would want to track down the roots of this wine fraud. What what did you think of these two investigators? Were they your protagonists in this documentary? You know, I went back and forth on that because I really love Laurent um, because to me, he was kind of like your everyday mystery sleuth, kind of, you know, not your typical 
protagonist that would be out solving a mystery. And I, I loved, you know, kind of as we were watching him, you know, we're watching him with the footage of him coming from France and he's in his little car and they've got really fun music every time he came in. So it kind of made it for me, you know, I was like, oh, here he comes with his little oom-pa-pa music again. So I, I loved him as this, you know, he was going to solve this on his own. And we're watching him, watching him navigate, you know, the streets of New York and the way that they filmed him as he was out doing this really, you know, made this like you were going along with him as he was solving this mystery. And uh, the other guy, I just thought he was funny because, you know, at the end, he like cracks open a beer, not to give a spoiler there, but uh, (laughs) he did not care about the wine. So he was not my favorite. Well, what, what's funny to me about this film is that, you know, at the end, you know, we, we know that Rudy has been convicted. That's not a spoiler alert. There's been like tons of magazine and, and articles about this. And it's just sort of the way that you're sort of brought into it. And they have interviews with Rudy's defense attorneys who basically make the same case that Toby made about this crime, which is who the hell cares if a bunch of rich people bought a bunch of bottles of wine? It's wine. It's not lives. You're not really like hurting it's not anyone. It's disenfranchised. It's yeah, rich people. Yeah, basically that this guy, you know, he figured out a way to make something valuable to people who didn't know any better and bought it anyway. And um, I guess the and question is... They didn't even is, know any better once they had it. Right. <laughs> and, 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 yeah, They're still <laughs> drinking it. In Hollywood, Jeff's, in Hollywood Jeff's case, driving around to all these fancy restaurants and getting sommeliers to taste the wine, some of whom, by the way, think it's good, and some of them are like, this is crap. I love um, when that was like, guy. that's like skunk piss or whatever he said. <laughs> that was great. I, I guess the question is, I mean, you can say this, I think this is a well-made movie that, that like lays out the story well, but like, do we actually care about the fraud? Toby, do you care at all that this fraud was committed? I tell you, I think there's a couple of different things that make me really just not give a shit at all. One of them is, and the lawyer kind of hints at this a little bit, which is, these guys, he, he's giving them a product that they like, that they're willing to pay that amount of money for, and they don't know the difference. So there's really, like, unless you, like, have somebody who points out to them that, you know, some label's wrong or whatever, they're not going to know the difference. They're having their $10,000 experience regardless. So that's one. Two is, you know, a lot of these guys are the same whatever, expletive deleted, who you know? They're not. They're not doing due diligence on this stuff. Douchebags. No, I was going to say something worse. Uh, <laughs> but they don't do the due diligence. They spend this money, and then they get kind of bent out of shape and hire private investigators. So these are the same guys who are like trying to protect people who are offering subprime mortgages to poor people. You know, and it's it's just like look. You're making the same mistake, but with less excuse. So in that way, I, I kind of thought there was like some hypocrisy there. And maybe I'm making some assumptions about these people. Do you, do, but do then you, in the do last, you feel bad at all for Laurent, though? I, mean, I just want to ask you that question. Laurent, I think, is the, is the one person who, you know, he's the only person who's like a victim. But, you know, part of him, like his whole the way he kind of expresses it is it's bringing Burgundy into disrepute when this guy's selling counterfeit burgundy stuff so it's more sort of a reputational type thing i guess or a purity type thing rather than sort of a monetary problem and as a matter of fact i bet you he probably made some money because of this big burgundy boom that was created so 
I, I just I have a hard time feeling too bad about it. I mean, I think it it, it goes like the amount of time that that he gets put away for for this. It, it, it seems so far removed from most of what we've talked about and yeah. what the consequences are for, say, the guy in ear hustle who you know attempted second degree burglary and it's thirty one years. Right. Right. You know, I mean, it's it's just it's just like a completely different system. Right. Well, the FBI is the FBI and they like financial. What are the FBI agents like financial crimes or financial crimes? Fraud is fraud. Right. It's yeah. kind of his, his argument on it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I, I think the one sort of lingering mystery that's left here, uh, and I don't want to spoil it too much, is just how did he do it? And, and, and we and we do see the FBI raid in his house. We see all the stuff. But then they talk about the quantity of wine that has been produced, like. 40,000 bottles or how something? it could have been done but the scale of it the scale is, is big. so far beyond what one person could possibly have done yeah. right it's sort of some missing pieces there yeah. right right laura yeah there absolutely was and it almost made me wonder if not all of it was in fact counterfeit if it was like mixed in because it just didn't seem feasible when you heard them describe the magnitude of what they thought he counterfeit. And then you see him kind of like the mad scientist, you know, mixing things up one by one. To me, that part, it didn't seem to gel for me. It just, I didn't think that was how it actually played out. Like who's actually putting labels on 50,000 bottles of water or something? You know, I know. It was very interesting. Um, You know, I, I, I just don't want to take away from sort of the other twists and turns that are in this documentary for our listeners who haven't yet watched it. So I guess I'm just going to ask you guys to sum it up. Like, Toby, do you think our listeners who haven't yet watched Sour Grapes on Netflix should check out this? It actually is a true crime documentary. It's in our wheelhouse, even though it's very different from other things we've talked about. Should they check it out? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs sideways. Toby, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, it, it was definitely, it was entertaining. It didn't have sort of the moral and societal issues that a lot of the stuff has. So... <laughs> You, you don't feel bad just kind of sitting back and rooting for this person or that person because they're all just they're all operating in this just really highly elevated position in life. So I, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I, I'd recommend it. I feel like we're going to get so many emails from like angry rich people this week. We're like, we don't care. Yeah. <laughs> Laura, what do you think of Have sour grapes? Over. Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs sideways. And more important, how many glasses of wine did you drink while you were watching this film? <laughs> um, well, I, I watched it at eight o'clock in the morning. So unlike uh, uh, Hollywood Jeff's pal, unlike me. Um, <laughs> I had some of my coffee. I will give it two wine glasses up. Um, I loved it because there's so many elements of this that are great. It's a great con man story. Everybody loves a great con man story to you know figure out how somebody pulled something off on people and then we have this window into this sort of subculture of the rich and famous wine world with all these wacky characters which really made it just so interesting and then the music was amazing that accompanied all these characters yeah i'm gonna give it a thumbs up too mostly for me it was like it was just a good movie it was fun uh it was beautifully made I actually found myself kind of rooting for the bad guy a little bit, which I love doing. Rudy, watching him perpetuate the con, seeing this footage of him when you know he's perpetuating a con while he's doing it, and you watch everyone and how they look at him in those tapes when he's, you know, talking to them, uh-huh. and they're just sort of so reverential, and, you know, he's like, he's from another country, and he has money. He has and a wonderful palate. He's a wonderful palate, and... 
You know, it's fun to say that it's a victimless crime. Who knows? There might be, you know, some people who are unemployed as a result. And, you know, I feel bad if that's the case. However, uh, I give this thumbs up. I say it's worth watching. It's an unconventional true crime documentary. What about you, Kevin? What's your review? Yeah, I'm very much between you and Toby that I think that this is a, a good crime documentary. It's not, you know, Peabody award winning or something like that. It isn't, you know, solving all of society's ills. However, you know, when it comes to just sort of looking at a crime, a con that is something that you've never seen before, but just from the inside, from the inside, just kind of want to see how it plays out. It's really fascinating. It makes me wonder, like looking at some of those wines, like what kind of wine would pair like with the things that we have for dinner? Oh boy! I'm also wondering, like, what kind of wine would pair with an RX bar, <laughs> and probably just about <laughs> any wine because the RX bar is the whole food protein bar made with. A few simple, clean ingredients, which all serve a purpose. I'm just going to say, I'm going on a limb and say that, like, I don't think the RX bar people have thought about what wine pairings they would make with it. Their, their food is, like, super nutritious, right? That's true. You don't actually have to have wine with the RX bar. <laughs> it's actually a great thing all of itself. It's perfect for breakfast on the go, snack in the office, throw in your bag for a bike ride. While you're hiking, traveling, just about anything. And in the interest of full transparency, all the core ingredients are labeled right on the front of the package. They've got egg whites for protein, dates to buy, nuts for texture. Just tells you, right, what's on it. Yeah. You, you know what you won't find in that? What? Polysorbate 80? Yeah. None of the goop. Yeah. You know, yellow dye number eight? It's You're honestly, not going to find all, that. It's very clean eating, these yeah. uh, RX bars, yes. Yeah, so whether you like sweet or savory or chocolate or fruit flavors, there is an RX bar for you. I really thought my favorite was going to be, there's a chocolate chip one. I like the chocolate peanut butter. I liked yeah. the chocolate sea salt myself. That was good, too. Also, the chocolate coffee one was quite tasty. Yeah, it was very good. I ended up going with the mixed berry, mm-hmm. which was cranberry, strawberries, and raspberries. Yep. They actually have 11 delicious flavor varieties, all of which are gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, and free of any added sugar, artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or fillers. Clean eating. Yeah, so for 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com slash crime and enter promo code crime at checkout. That's rxbar.com slash crime. Promo code crime for 25% off your first order. Crime and the promo code crime. And the promo code crime. All right. What else you got, Kevin? Well, you know, the hardest part of a home improvement project is finding the motivation to get started. Oh, I live with you. I know that. Don't look at me like that. (laughs) Well, luckily, SelectBlinds.com makes ordering blinds online simple and easy. All you have to do is go to SelectBlinds.com. They give you the freedom and selection to tackle your blind, shade, and shutter needs. And it's good because, you know, if you're running a multi-million dollar <laughs> wine counterfeiting operation you need some good out of your kitchen, yes. yes, you need some good blinds. While you're steaming those labels off. Steaming those labels off. While you're mixing your box wine with your other box wine. Yeah, trying to find the right flavor that tastes like <laughs> the really expensive wine. With products you've seen on all your favorite home improvement shows, SelectBlinds.com is your go-to for guaranteed quality. And it's really simple and the smart way to use blinds. Their experts will help you with the measuring and how to order and how to install. It's it's great. So to get the best deals on high-quality blinds, shades, and shutters. And curtains. 
Catch up today at selectblinds.com. Remember to mention our show at checkout using the drop down menu. They have a drop down menu. They do is our show's name on it. Yeah, like I think you pull a string and it goes <laughs> like, a, like a blind. Let selectblinds.com transform your home. Selectblinds.com. Mention our show at checkout. Please. 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 If you're buying curtains or blinds, mention our show. Please. We have to buy wine. Now it's time to move <laughs> on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, of the, the week. week. And this one's doing double duty because we get to redeem ourselves with a pronunciation of a certain city's name. Is it from vacation land? It is from Bangor, from the Bangor Daily News. Yes, we are talking about a story that went hyper viral this week for being maybe one of the best written news stories that has been put out there in a very long time. Okay, Mr. Pulitzer. I'm just going to go ahead and read the lead for you, and then I will ask you my question. Okay. Hope, Maine. While jogging on a familiar overgrown wooded trail near her home on a recent warm afternoon, Rachel Borch thought to herself, what a beautiful day. Little did she know she was about to be attacked by a rabid raccoon she would end up killing with her bare hands. It's like you can hear the needle drop, right? It's like a Kanye song. It's like this is where the beat goes down. It's insane. And for any of our listeners who've actually read the story, it's gone viral on social media. Uh, If you haven't read it, basically what happened is that uh, Rachel Borch was running at her near her home in Maine. She was attacked by a rabid raccoon. She realized she was being attacked by a rabid raccoon. And she had the presence of mind to say, I know it's going to bite me. I'm going to let it bite me on the hand so I can actually do something with it. And then she proceeded to let the raccoon bite her on the thumb. She realized she had dropped her iPhone into a puddle so that there was a puddle. She put the rabid raccoon's face in the puddle and held it down and drowned it in the puddle. <laughs> Then she ran the rest of the way home, screaming and crying, she says, because by the way, this raccoon, its paws were scratching her arms and legs wildly while it was attacking her. Like it confronted her in the trail. It like really attacked her. It was not like it wasn't like just there. Like it went for her. But here's my favorite detail of the story. Yes, yes. My here's my favorite detail of the story. You know, uh, hyperventilating and hysteric, she pulled her thumb out of the raccoon's mouth, and I bolted as fast as I could through the underbrush. She gets home. Uh, she said she felt like she was in Stephen King's pet cemetery. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> happens when you live in Bangor. You ever think everything? Right, Stephen right. King. So she met her mother Elizabeth at home. Together, they drove immediately to the Penn Bay Medical Center. The dead raccoon was retrieved by Borch's dad, who packed it into a Taste of the Wild dog food bag. Motherfucker, no. And handed it over to the main warden service. Oh, my God. Hey, this I is, think that's the kind of dog food my dog eats. Yeah, it's just like this. It's, what's wonderful now about this story. Now it's 100% more raccoon. Now, to talk about news writing, what's wonderful about the story, it's not a super long story. No, Look, not, this no. is it. It packs in every available detail, like to incredible effect. Stefan from Saturday Night Live is like, this story has everything. <laughs> Wild raccoons, dog food, Stephen King, <laughs> Pet cemetery. Yes, and that's the second time this week you've gotten to use that uh, joke, which is bully for you, Kevin. This story aside, here is my question for the panel, because this is what I actually want to know. What would you do if you were attacked by a rabid woodland creature? Would you be nearly as badass as this woman, Rachel Borch? Toby, I'm going to start with you. I would run. (laughs) (laughs) She tried. She was actually running and the thing was circling her. I'm sorry. 
if you're running at a full sprint, there's no fucking way a sick raccoon can circle you. <laughs> I, I just don't see it happening. I would A, not encourage a rabid animal to bite me, and B, you know, the drowning thing is pretty badass, but I think I would just run. All right, so Toby says he would run. Laura Bricker, what would you do if you found yourself in this situation with the rabid woodland creature hurling itself at you? I would call my dog buddy the great woodchuck killer, and he would lay the smack down in like five seconds. You basically sacrifice your dog. Because you know what happens no, if your he's dog is really, by a rabid animal. You know what happens, right? He's already, oh, he's already, he's had the, he's been vaccinated. But he, I'm telling you, he can kill that thing. So, I mean, he's killed woodchucks in like five seconds. It's like, boom, there they are. They're dead. <laughs> and then he comes trotting along. So he's got some ninja moves. What about you, Kev? What would you do? Uh, I would cry. And I would probably be dead right now. That woman is bad ass. But let's face it, you would never be running on the trail in the woods to begin with. Yeah, that's true. It'd be like... <laughs> What is this raccoon well, you know. doing in my kitchen while I'm trying to get a, <laughs> a Gino's pizza roll? The hell? Hey, maybe now that you're eating those RX bars, Kevin, you might be running in the woods. Rebecca, what would you do? It's actually a, a really, one of the other reasons I love the story. It feels very personal to me because as you what? know, I actually do go out with the dogs yeah. oh. every morning yeah. to trails in the woods uh-huh. near our home. Yeah. And as you also know, I have a paralyzing fear of animals with rabies. Right. This is literally my personal Stephen King nightmare right wow, here. Yeah. I, I would like to think that I would do what Rachel Borch did, but knowing how I react when I see zombies at amusement parks and so <laughs> forth, I'd probably just lie on the ground and let it kill me. Yeah. <laughs> You should be more afraid of the ticks that you bring back to get on me. I probably, probably should. All right. So we should probably wrap it up on that note. But before we do, Laura Bricker, is there a cat of the week this week? There is a, well, you know what? I've got to get back on the cats, but people have been sending me such creative photos of their dogs recently. All right. What we got uh, this, this week? Yep. Yeah. Josh, defense attorney Josh, his <gasps> dog. Josh, who was on the show when we talked about the night of Josh from New Jersey, Josh? Oh, yeah, our defense attorney friend. Yes. I believe so, yes. And his dog, Bacon, who likes dunks, and that's a very New England thing, mm-hmm. Dunkin' Donuts. And he also was a fan of peanut butter. But, I mean, anything that has to do with bacon, even if it's a dog, is a good thing. Yeah. And uh, he sent a whole photo collage of bacon <laughs> in various poses, including one with what looks like perhaps either a dead animal or a sword. I can't really tell because he's cropped it out. <laughs> but the creativity on these uh, submissions is really getting off the charts. It really, really is. Well, Laura Bricker, if people want to reach you online to either uh, tweet you their love for sour grapes and or pitch you their animals for uh, dog slash cat of the week. How can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, before I let you go, I know that you guys just dropped a new episode of Radio Free Dystopia. Can you tell us in 20 seconds or less what is happening on Radio Free Dystopia this week? Sure. We have a great talk with the author of a book called A Kim Jong-il Production about North Korea and propaganda and films. Well, if people want to check that out, go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Look for Radio Free Dystopia featuring Toby Ball and the amazing Meg Heckman. Toby, if people want to tweet to you, how can they find you on Twitter? At TobyBallNH. And Kevin Flynn. Her listeners want to tweet to you and uh, maybe give you some cough remedies because apparently it's back. It's back, yeah. <laughs> how can they find you on Twitter? 
They can find me at Kevin P. Flynn. They can also check out this latest episode of These Are Their Stories with Carvel Wallace, your co-host from Slade's Mom and Dad Are Fighting it's Podcast. It's such a good episode We're of These Are Their Stories. It's SVU, Come Back With My Frozen Embryos. It has everything. It has dwarves. It has frozen embryos. <laughs> it has paraplegic egg donors. <laughs> it has Luis from Sesame Street. It, it has, has everything. everything. Yeah. It is a great episode of These Are Their Stories. I would check it out, too. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Instagram at Reb Lavoie. And this show is also on Twitter at Crime Writers On and on Facebook. Just look for us there and please chat with our fellow listeners. Our listeners on Facebook are really fun. You can sign up for our newsletter, buy stuff using our Amazon link at our website, crimewriterson.com. Listen to our other show, These Are Their Stories. Listen to Toby's show, Radio Free Dystopia. Our handsome line producer is Henry Lavoie. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This show was recorded in Square Egg Studio, the closet in our basement, formerly known as Studio C, and to be known in the future as the place I will definitely definitely bury Kevin Flynn's body. <laughs> On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later. Select Blinds is not actually going to help you with your wine con. What the f*** am I going with that? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, <laughs> take that right out. <laughs> uh, keep, keep rolling, Keep Kevin. going, baby. I'm yes. liking this. <laughs> You should see how I have my, I took a picture of how my microphone is like balanced because I'm on this tiny little side table. In your vacation and, uh, home? We really feel f***ing bad for you, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us more about how you're roughing it at your lake house. I am roughing it. It's very difficult it's here. so <laughs> difficult. So difficult to podcast. From You're, this tiny table. It's so difficult to record my popular podcast on which I get the least hate mail <laughs> from the tiny table in my lake home. All right, all right, all, all right. right. Fancy ass problems. Okay, here we go. Partners in Crime Media. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.